so if it is all right with you, I'd like to do first John. And we'll actually just do second and third John, the second two letters are very short. I watched some preacher that Tom sent me a link to on YouTube, and he made an interesting comment, and I hadn't ever thought of it in this light, but it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I've been doing is I'm reading a book that details how human thought and perception have changed since the Egyptians to now. We don't think anything like they thought. And this remark that this preacher made was sort of in the same vein. We are used to instant communication. We are used to inexpensive communication. So if I want to communicate with anybody here, I'll pick up a phone or write an email. Or at the very worst, I'll write a letter and put a stamp on it. But any of that is very, very inexpensive compared to what it took to send a letter in biblical times, which is the remark that this guy made. So the idea of these biblical letters that we get, you know, John and Paul and Peter and so forth, these were not a sort of, hi, how are you? Hope you guys are doing well. Love and kisses, Paul or whoever. The only reason that you would write a letter in that time is if you had something serious to say. We communicate so inexpensively now that probably 90% of our communication is trivia. Cat videos and stuff of that nature. Ooh, you look so awesome in that picture. You've seen the social media level of communication. So the question that it leads me to ask, and this guy's understanding of Romans is very similar to mine, but I'm looking at First John and I'm saying, okay, given that these things were expensive to write, why did you write this letter? What was going on? And the answer that I get is that he is correcting a problem in the churches that he's writing to. Now, several things about this letter, just for uh, housekeeping. It is attributed to John by other people. John is not mentioned in this letter. So he doesn't say like Paul says, I, Paul, am doing X, Y, or Z. John doesn't mention his name in here. It is also not addressed to anyone specific. So Paul's letters say, you know, to the synagogue in Rome, or Peter's letters say to the uh, tribes in the diaspora, so forth. So this letter is not addressed to anybody. It's attributed to John by other people who lived at that time, and the addressees are assumed to be Christians in Asia Minor, which is today's Turkey. And the reason that they think that is because in Revelation, remember, it says John was on the island of Patmos. And so John was a leader of the church in Asia Minor, which is attested to in Revelation. So everybody sort of assumes that he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Nobody knows. And all of these are perfectly good guesses. I mean, there's no problem with any of these guesses. But as I say, the, the, the author does not identify himself, and he doesn't identify the addressees. The third thing we don't know is when it was written. And there's a couple of opinions on that. One is late in the first century, which is fine. I don't know where they get that, but that's one of the opinions. The other one is sometime before 65 AD, because it doesn't mention 
the Roman crushing of the Jewish rebellion in 70. So the fact is none of the New Testament letters mention the destruction of the temple and, and the Roman destruction of the Jewish revolt in 70 AD, which leads me to believe, and I'm not authoritative at all, it's just what I think, that these were probably written before, which is going to lead us to a couple of conclusions about what he's talking about, because that isn't obvious. He's talking about some kind of false teaching. And if you look at what false teachings were prevalent when, Gnosticism really got started later on. So could be against Gnosticism, maybe not. Gnosticism is competitor of Christianity that believes that the more you know, the more holy you are. So for example, the Masons are a Gnostic organization. They have different levels and as you go up you get different merit badges and you get read into more and more mysteries as you get more and more advanced. Then the whole idea is the more you know, the holier you are. The other thing about Gnosticism is that they believe that this world we are in is evil, that our natural state is to be free spirits, and our goal is to get out of this world and become the free spirits that we're designed to be. That comes from Greece. It doesn't come from Jerusalem. Very similar to some of the Eastern religions where your idea is you want to get off the wheel. You keep getting reincarnated, and one hopes that you improve each time around until finally you don't come back. Gnosticism is very similar to that. It was an early competitor to Christianity. Having said all that, this letter appears to me to have a couple of different purposes, two or three depending on how you want to count them. One is to talk about false teaching, which I'm thinking is the primary reason the letter was written. For those of you who have been through Galatians, where Paul is writing to a church that he had planted, and you have some Messianic Jews of the circumcision party who have come back through the Galatian churches after Paul has left and have tried to convince the new Galatian Christians that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So Paul's letter to the Galatians is to counteract that false teaching. Similarly, John's letter here seems to be also primarily to counteract a false teaching. The problem is we don't know what the false teaching is because he doesn't ever explicitly state it. And when we get there, I'll explain what the deal is. But the thing to understand is that whole region of the world is a great big smorgasbord of religions. You had paganism, you had Caesar worship, you had all sorts of different religious traditions. You had Judaism, uh, Christianity, etc. So within that mishmash, it's really easy to go astray. And one of the things that happens, very human, and it certainly happened to the Christian church, is as the Christian church has expanded into new regions, what they have wound up doing is picking up chunks of the local non-Christian religion and incorporating those chunks into Christianity. Christmas on December 25th, the Day of the Dead in Mexico, the Queen of Heaven in Mexico. All sorts of things get sort of scooped in 
to Christianity as Christianity overruns, if you will, lands that have different religions. So by the time we get to here, Christianity has become a syncretistic mishmash. There's just all sorts of stuff floating around in Christian churches. Not everything in every church, thank God. Pick and choose. But the idea that the church goes astray very early is certainly evident here. It's evident in Paul's letters. It's evident in the letters to the churches in Revelation. So the idea that this letter is being written to correct an error is sort of thing one. And I suspect that's probably the primary motivation for the writing of it. And of course the second motivation for writing it is encouragement. Because what he will do in here is he will encourage them and give them some pastoral or homiletic advice on how to live with each other and those kinds of things. So let's go ahead and launch it. You can figure out probably the next four sessions will be on John. The first letter, maybe one and a half weeks, and then we'll do the last two letters just because they're both very short, and as long as we're here, we might as well do that. Within Christianity, there are a number of different opinions of who Christ is. The three dominant opinions, in fact, there are only three opinions, and all of the rest of them are variations on these three, One is who he says he is, the Son of God, God himself incarnate. Fully God and fully human, which is what I believe. Two is that he is the Spirit of God who put on a man suit. In other words, he didn't really become born as a man. The man Jesus is the Spirit of God who has put on a man suit. And in that sense, the Spirit of God left at the crucifixion and didn't go through it. And then number three, which is Yeshua was simply a man upon whom the Spirit of God fell and overtook. So he was just a regular old guy and the Spirit of God landed on him and he then perked up and went off and did all sorts of Jesus stuff. Those are sort of the three variations on who Christ was. And by the way, This argument went on for several hundred years after the crucifixion. You had church councils involved, I mean, all sorts of stuff, trying to thrash this out. As I said, there's no bad idea that goes away. They change their form, they change their shape, but they keep going. My favorite poster boy for this is Marcion, who was in fact declared a heretic. But his heresy was that Jesus and God are two different beings and the God of the Old Testament was mean and wrathful and nasty and you don't want anything to do with him. What you want is this gentle loving Jesus of the New Testament. That was Marcion's original heresy and Arius and Athanasius were arguing and theirs was over an iota. Doesn't make an iota's worth a difference. It's homoousius or homoousius of the very same substance or similar to the distinction. So it isn't at all clear what particular heresy is being spoken against here because all of that stuff was floating around and still is floating around. So First John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. All right, so the first thing he's saying is, I personally knew this guy, Yeshua. 
I touched him with my hands. If you read commentaries, those who don't think this is John think it's somebody who was a disciple of Yeshua's before the crucifixion. Nobody's 100% sure, but John is the consensus view, and I'm happy with that. So what John is saying, first off, is he's establishing that he knew Yeshua personally, physically touched him. So that which from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua Messiah, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Verse 4 can be read two different ways, and they are two different Greek manuscripts. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Other manuscripts say your joy may be complete. But regardless, we're doing this for purposes of joy. Notice that he has described Yeshua as the life. And what does Yeshua say during his incarnation? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he is saying the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. Now that can be taken two ways. It can be taken that Yeshua, who is the life, is also eternal, which is true. It can also be taken that he is proclaiming to us eternal life. And to proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. So in that sense, the eternal life we're talking about here is Yeshua, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is life eternal in himself. In other words, he himself is immortal. So concerning the word of life, and then parenthesis, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and so forth, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So what he's saying is, he is preaching to you the gospel, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. So as a believer, we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Yeshua Messiah. So what we're talking about is fellowship between the addressees of the letter, fellowship with John, fellowship with the Father, and fellowship with the Son. And we are writing these things so that our joy or your joy may be complete. Now, if we take it as your joy, we can then take this letter as being in the same spirit as Galatians. Because the reason Galatians was being written, remember, is because these people were coming through and were sowing doubt and confusion among the Galatian church. And so what he is saying here is somebody has been sowing doubt and confusion among you, and I am now telling you the truth so that your joy may be complete. In other words, so I can remove all doubt from your mind and you can go about your life in the simple joy of knowing who Yeshua is and what your relationship is to him. And of course, if it's our joy, which is John's joy, I would really be happy if you guys get straightened out. Now, back to verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, 
take a minute and think about the events that happened while Yeshua was walking on the earth. All the miracles and stuff that he did. Then he was crucified and he died. He was raised from the dead, spent some time with his apostles, and then was sucked up into the overhead. When was all of this made manifest to John? I think it was at the island of Patmos when he was sucked up into the overhead himself and was given a vision, which he wrote down in Revelation. The events of Revelation, when he is sucked up into the heavens and he sees all of the things that are the things that are to come and so forth, he is now at that point seeing the full scope of the manifestation of Yeshua, who Yeshua actually is and what his relationship is to God. And I'm suggesting that down here below the clouds, when he was walking around with Yeshua, and even perhaps during the time that Yeshua was walking around during his resurrection, it isn't really clear that you would be able to say you have personally seen all of that stuff until after the revelation. In other words, one of the things that I have said many times is being raised from the dead is, is a big deal, but that is not what proves that Yeshua is the Messiah because there have been lots of people in Scripture that have been raised from the dead. The Shunammite's son was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Paul raised somebody from the dead. Elisha raised a couple of people from the dead. So there have been a number of people raised from the dead in the Bible, none of whom are the Messiah. As I said, being raised from the dead is a big deal. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to say it as if it's just sort of a trivial, oh, by the way. It isn't. It's a big deal. But the fact that this guy Yeshua was raised from the dead is not the thing that makes him the Messiah. And so the fact that he's walking around with his disciples after having been raised from the dead doesn't in and of itself give John the witness of the things that he is describing here. Because this guy Yeshua could be like the Shunammite son or like Lazarus or any one of a dozen people that have been raised from the dead. So I'm suggesting that perhaps what's going on here is he's referring to the vision that he got, which led to the writing of Revelation. By the way, what does make him the Messiah if it's not resurrection? It's the prophecies. You have all of the prophecies in the Torah and the writings, and the fact that he goes through and systematically fulfills those prophecies is the thing that authenticates him as the Messiah, one of which is calling back Ephraim which has not happened yet. So the rabbis don't buy that this guy was the Messiah because there are messianic prophecies that he did not fulfill. Christian theology says that there's going to be two incarnations, the first one and the next one. And in the next one, all the stuff that he didn't do in the first one, he'll do. And I'm perfectly happy with that. I believe that also. We're now all the way down to verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Does that remind you of anything? That reminds me of the beginning of the book of John. Let's go there. So this is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Doesn't that sound like the beginning of his letter? When I say we don't know who wrote the letter, that is technically true. I don't have any problem believing it was John. Back to 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what he's talking about is echoing what was being talked about in the Gospel of John, which is to say that one of the things that men do is they refuse the light because the light exposes what they are doing and the things that they are doing are sinful and shameful so they reject the light because the light shines on their actions and they don't want their actions exposed. So mashup, if you will, between John 1 and 1 John 1. So verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the only reason that you need forgiveness of sins is if you sin. And so the whole point he is saying here is the fact that Yeshua has arranged for our sins to be forgiven is a consequence of the fact that we need to be forgiven. And so if you say that you don't need to be forgiven, you're a liar, the truth isn't in you, and you're walking in the darkness, and we can't have fellowship with you because you don't acknowledge that you have sin that needs to be forgiven, therefore you don't need a Messiah, Therefore, the blood of Yeshua is a waste of time. Chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua, Messiah, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Full stop. This is the second time in Scripture that that particular thing gets said. Peter also says it. And the deal here is that the blood of Messiah covers everybody's sin. It says the sins of the whole world, right? That's everybody. Now, there are some people, and he said this in the paragraph above, who are not going to accept that gift because they will not acknowledge that they are sinful. They will not acknowledge that they need it, but it's available to them. Now, I am personally of the opinion that when the world comes to the great white throne, you are going to be confronted with Yeshua, God incarnate, and you know, all the Hottentots and the Bantus and the Aboriginals and everybody that has never had an opportunity to know Yeshua is going to get looked right in the face by him and saying, you want your sins forgiven, and you'll get a choice. I read a really interesting article that lots and lots of people choose hell. And lots of people who live in addiction and are engrossed in social media and where that's their whole life, they have turned to the world and turned away from God. And some of them have done it foolishly, but a lot of them have done it deliberately. And one of the things that Christianity does, which is absolutely terrifying, is it gives you no way out. According to Christian theology, you either go with Yeshua and into the world to come, or you go to hell. There's no, poof, you're not there anymore. 
Now, the number of people who commit suicide indicates to me that there are a great many people who really want the third option. I just don't want to exist anymore. I'm tired of existing. I don't want to exist anymore, so I'm going to stop existing. And what Christianity doesn't allow is this idea that you can just opt out and you can cease to exist. Going back to Gnosticism, the whole idea is I want to get out of this world, I want to get off the wheel. If I'm going to continue to exist, I want to exist as a free-floating spirit, if nothing else. But I really just don't care if I continue to exist or not. That's a choice of hell, because you've rejected what's on offer. And there are lots of people who make that choice. Some of them are deceived, but a whole lot of them aren't. Chapter 2, pick it back up at 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I will gently suggest for those members of the Sunday church who have said that the law has been done away with, this is a direct refutation of that. First thing is keep his commandments. Many Sunday churches do make the argument, well, he didn't command us to keep the law of Moses. He gave us his own commandments, you know, love one another and all that kind of stuff. So Yeshua's commandments are very different from Moses' commandment. But then you get to verse 6, which says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And what he did is he walked according to Torah. So there isn't any way, at least in my lightning-fast mind, where you can say that the Torah is no longer binding on believers in Messiah. I believe that it is. Obviously, I do. I'm in a messianic church. So we'll break off at 2-6, and we'll pick it up, God willing, at 2-7 next time. <laughs>